From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 185 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm as welcome as can be. <laughs> I I don't know why I haven't answered like that yet. It took a couple uh, weeks of you doing that, but I got there, I feel like. <laughs> How are you, though? I'm doing well. I'm doing well in our little jamboree here. <laughs> so. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, in this episode, we are continuing a series we began way back in the day, with an interview with Disney animator Andreas Deja on the Walt's Nine Old Men. And we've talked about Ward Kimball, and today we'll be talking about the first of Walt's Nine Old Men, Les Clark. So let's start with talking about who the Nine Old Men were. And these men were the core of Walt Disney's animation studio and the foundation of this entire, of his entire enterprise. Walt called them his nine old men, playing off Franklin Roosevelt's term for the United States Supreme Court justices, with whom he was having a disagreement and was threatening to stack the court by increasing the number of justices. And that, boys and girls, is why you need to study history, because it does repeat itself. Very true. Very true. And back in the day, Congress and the American people were appalled by Roosevelt's plan, and it never happened. (laughs) Anyway, Walt's nine old men were Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, Wooly Reitherman, and Frank Thomas. However, these men were not the first group of animators important to the history of Walt's animation legacy. An earlier group had been instrumental to Walt's success, from Steamboat Willie in 1928 to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937. Art Babbitt, Norm Ferguson, Ub Iwerks, Ham Lusk, Fred Moore, and Bill Teitla were the veteran artists who trained the Nine Old Men, who later replaced these veteran animators. These weren't the only artists Walt relied on. There were dozens of other key artists, men and women, who worked at the Walt Disney Studio alongside the Nine Old Men, who were just as crucial to the art of animation and the success of the studio. However, Walt's brand name for this lead group of animators, Nine Old Men, stuck, and journalists and historians began using it, and it has become a part of Disney lore. Although Walt's nine old men were united in their efforts to realize Walt's vision, it's not clear if they ever saw themselves as a group. Friendships and rivalries grew amongst them. Despite being regarded as a group, 
They were individual artists who approached their craft with unique strengths, styles, and attitudes. They also did not work together on the same films. What films they did work on was dependent on who Walt felt had the talents a particular project demanded. They may not have been united by their approach to art or the films they worked on, but they were united by their belief by Walt's genius, and together they created some of the greatest animated films, even by today's standards, and it is important that they are remembered. Leslie James Les Clark was the first of Walt Disney's Nine Old Men. He joined the Disney Brothers studio in 1927 and was the only one to work on the origins of Mickey Mouse with Ub Iwerks. Les Clark was born in Ogden, Utah in 1907. He attended the elementary school there until his parents decided to move to Los Angeles when Les was a teenager. It was there that he graduated from Venice High School four days before he began working for Walt Disney on February 23, 1927. He was the oldest of a dozen children and had great maturity as well as a great work effort. Les first met Walt and Roy Disney in 1925 when he was a high school student working part-time at a confectionery shop that served ice cream on Vermont Avenue near the Disney Brothers studio. Walt had complimented Les on the lettering he made for the menus on the mirrors at the confectionery shop. Les had become fascinated with cartoons and would go to the movies to sit through several pictures so he could see the cartoons over again, particularly ones with Felix the Cat. And remember, as we've talked about previously, Felix was the number one cartoon character at the time. Two years later, in 1927, with a desire to get into animation and about to graduate from Venice High School, Les got up the nerve to ask Walt for a job. Bring some of your drawings in and let's see what they look like, he recalled Walt saying. At the Hyperion studio in the Silver Lake area east of Hollywood, Les showed his samples, which he admitted were freehand copies of cartoons in the popular College Humor magazine. But Walt admired his swift, deft graphic line and hired him. Les graduated from high school on a Thursday and excitedly reported to work the following Monday, February 23, 1927, though Walt warned him it might just be a temporary job. The temporary job lasted nearly half a century. By the time he retired in 1975, Les Clark was a senior animator and director and the longest continuously employed member of Walt Disney Productions. Before he turned 18, Les's father fell off the roof of a house he was building, leaving him unable to work for the next few years, leaving Les to have to help support his entire family. Les's job at the Disney studio became the family's main source of income. Eventually, Les helped get his father hired as a security guard at the studio and found his sister a job in the ink and paint department. And a funny little fun fact is that his sister was sort of the character model for the um, the lead in the in the Flowers and Trees in that go- the goddess, the female goddess. That was she. The that character was based on her poses. Oh, really? Yeah. 
I love it. It's such a beautiful character. It is. It is. And that character helped uh, Walt understand that they, his animators were not quite up to snuff for Snow White. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, close, but definitely not not quite all the way there. But it, you start to see the, the inklings. It's getting close. Yeah, yeah. She was just a little too rubbery in her movements. Yeah. Les spent his first year at the studio as a camera operator. He also learned the craft of inking the animator's drawings on celluloid sheets or cells before they were photographed on a painted background under the camera. Eventually, he became an in-betweener on the scenes with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Les Clark was the only one of the nine that worked directly with Ub Iwerks, training under him and helping to develop the new character of Mickey Mouse after Oswald the Rabbit was no longer a Walt Disney property. He began working on the first Mickey Mouse cartoons after Walt's fateful trip to New York and meeting with Charles Mintz. He worked in secret along with Walt and Ub as an in-betweener to get the first Mickey Mouse cartoons finished further impressing Walt in the process. In 1928, when nearly all of Walt's animation staff defected to go work for Walt's former Oswald distributor, Charles Mintz, Ub Iwerks and Les Clark were some of the few to stay behind. Since Les was very low down the pipeline, he was never approached by Charles Mintz to come to Universal Studios, and so he remained at the Walt Disney Studio. And so, and there's a funny story that I think I heard Andreas Deja tell about this. Because Les was never approached, he didn't know what was going on at the studio. And this was very early in his hiring. And nobody talked about what was going on at the studio. And so everybody was chummy and, and you know, uh, Les was telling his family how cheerful people were and how friendly they were. But then he commented to his family how odd it was that on the weekends, people took all their personal belongings with them. And he thought it was very strange. And he, he told his parents, you know, did they think somebody was going to steal them? Well, that was the weekend they were all leaving. And Les had no idea. And so he was stunned when he reported to work on Monday. And it was basically him and Up, who were the animators. (laughs) And that's when Les found out the story of what had happened. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's a story. (laughs) So together they created the first Mickey Mouse shorts, Plain Crazy and the Galloping Gaucho. But it was the synchronized sound cartoon Steamboat Willie that was immediately popular with audiences and gave the struggling studio a much-needed influx of cash. With the success of Mickey Mouse, Walt wanted to diversify and introduce the Silly Symphonies, in which music was central to the storytelling. The first Silly Symphony was the Skeleton Dance in 1929, which was mostly animated by Ub Iwerks. But this was Les's first solo animation in which he animated a scene of a skeleton playing the ribs of another skeleton like a xylophone. And, you know, Ub gets the credit, full credit for silly for the skeleton dance. And I think that's a tribute to Les's 
animation skill because it's seamless. You yeah. have no idea that another animator is contributing to Skeleton Dance. Uh, for sure. That's, that's one of the things I was going to bring up is that it really is completely seamless in, in a way. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's also awesome to know that less less took care of the scene with the the xylophone playing because that's to me like besides the four skeletons in a row dancing i think four right it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter but besides the skeletons dancing in a row uh, in synchronicity that you know like we would see in the the opening <clears throat> credits of a disney halloween and such being used places like besides that i feel like the next most iconic part of that short is the the xylophone playing and uh it's just it, it's a it's a really really fun moment in that but uh, like you said it's just it's seamless uh it, it you would you, you pretty much would never know you would think that it's all just almost one person's job with it mm-hmm. absolutely and most people do think that in these early days of animation, many innovations in animation were still to be discovered, including squash and stretch. That's by distorting the character's face and overall body mass, the illusion of life becomes more believable. And it seemed that by showing the change within the rhythm of the character, the animated performances became much more convincing to audiences. In the Mickey Mouse short Orphan's Benefit, Les used squash and stretch with the character of Clara Cluck. In this film, Miss Cluck portrays an opera singer during a talent show that is hosted by Mickey Mouse. And we've talked about Orphan's Benefit recently, but we talked about Donald Duck's performance in this yeah. short. But Les, is, Les animated Clara Cluck, Cluck when she was entering the stage with a weighty walk. And her, well, shall we say, overly generous body parts mm-hmm. move uh, with overlapping motion. And the effect is both entertaining and convincing. And as she sings, Les uses dramatic distortions in her body to emphasize the high notes. And I think he really brings to life a, a relatively unknown character and makes her one of the highlights of Orphan's Benefit. Yeah, I definitely i i it's hard to not say the the biggest highlight of orphan's benefit uh it's 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 just it's perfect animation again i know that's going to be kind of the repeating theme throughout this but it's it's what you get from someone who is a master Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah now less learned all of the Byrick's work, work methods, including his way of convincing, convincingly staging gags. Characters needed to be drawn in clear silhouette to communicate their humorous antics. Now, Ub animated a vast majority of the first Silly Symphonies, but soon after he left to start up his own animation studio. However, Ub's departure actually wasn't an impediment to the progress of the Walt Disney Studio, and unlike the previous event with Charles Mintz, didn't cause any artists to leave. With Up Gone, Les stepped up as the lead animator and specialist of Mickey Mouse. Around this time, he got a young animator named Fred Moore put under his supervision, who was a natural animator and would eventually become the most influential person in defining the Disney style. 
In 1935's The Band Concert, Les animated all the important scenes with Mickey Mouse, whose movements needed to be in sync with the music throughout the film. By this time, Les's skill had outpaced Ub's. Les's animation of Mickey is smoother than what Ub had achieved with Mickey early on. And, you know, we've talked again about the band concert in the past when we were doing our Mickey Mouse retrospective and in Donald Duck's. And, uh, and, and one of the things that we always comment on is how amazing that this was animated without computers. Because one of uh, Alessa's uh, major talents was being able to animate and synchronize to music. Mm-hmm. And, and band concert is, has to be one of the most complex of the shorts in putting together the animation and the music in the middle of that tornado with all the gags that are just coming one after the other. And it's just, it's an amazing short. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, that's why we take every opportunity we can on the show to, to, to make sure that we point that out, which it comes up a lot, but that's just, that shows how important it is. But I, I think, I think a critical part into it, besides even just the, uh, the synchronicity with the music and, and Mickey's movement is also the, the, the point that you made about it being smoother, even, uh, that's, that is, to me, what makes it really tough. Uh, anyone who's a professional doodler out there and likes to, you know, do the, on the notepads, do your little rough animations on the bottom, uh, you know how difficult it is to, to truly, truly find that balance between how many, how many drawings do you want to put into the animation to, to truly get a more realistic and fluid approach to it. And, it's, I'm not saying that any Disney animator ever, ever cut corners or did too much with it, but I think there is, there is a method to finding that perfect balance of, of believability where it all just, it all works. And I think, I think Disney did that for a long time, but there's always, there's always a way to, to perfect it. And I think, I think that is noticeable in something like the band concert with, with Mickey and in the work that Les was doing on it. And it's one of those, it's just one of those uh, details that I feel like is truly, it's taken for granted. It's, I don't think a lot of people look towards it when they really should. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely. So, and I think it's because it looks so natural uh, that we tend not to notice. Yeah. It's, it, it's just, it, it's kind of like in a lot of movies it, that when there's that shot that's so well done, framed perfectly, executed well, if it's done really well, it doesn't, it doesn't look like there's any effort put into it and mm-hmm. that's kind of how i feel about like like the band concert in general there's clearly a ton of effort put into it just so so much but it's all done so well that you you don't even realize how much was put in and that's that is a special thing like you don't always have to throw all the bells and whistles in to make it look more impressive and it all goes back to to great animation and and 
and great artists working on these projects. Like Les. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Now, Walt's ongoing demand for improved animation performances would continue to push his animators into new heights of character animation. Fred Moore, whilst assisting Les Clark, came into his own as an animator in the 1930s. He never seemed to struggle with any of his assignments, and everything he drew had great appeal and personality. Walt Disney encouraged his animators to study Fred Moore's style so they could capture some of his charm in their own work. By 1936, Fred had redefined the design for Disney characters, and his drawing style had influenced the entire studio. We get into this more in, go back and listen to our series we did on Mickey Mouse, and and we talk a lot about Fred Moore and his contributions in that series. One change Fred made was how characters' eyes were animated. Many of the early characters were drawn with simple oval eyes painted a solid black. Fred created realistic eyes with oval white shapes drawn with small black pupils, giving a greater range of facial emotions to the characters. Art Babbitt and Liz Clark made full use of this style when they animated Abner the Mouse for the short The Country Cousin. Both artists pushed the boundaries of elasticity when it came to exaggerating the expressions. Les animated a series of scenes in which the country mouse, looking at the mountains of human food, cannot help himself but stuff his mouth in the broadest way possible. And and I I do think this is where um, where we do see a, a big, I don't know, change in how expressions are used in characters there there's some great movement forward and also um squash and stretch was really used effectively mm-hmm. all throughout this um this short we talked about it we were talking about i think turner classic movies from the disney vault when it was on yes i believe that was okay. that was when we talked about it mm-hmm In the mid-1930s, a large number of artists who had gone to art school would later become very dynamic personality animators were hired by Walt. In 1934, Ward Kimball, Milk Call, Frank Thomas, and Bill Teitla came in just in time because with the feature Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in the back of his mind, Walt had begun to bring in Donald Graham, the great life-drawing teacher at the Chouinard Institute, into the studio to give action analysis classes to the animators to improve their skills. Les was an avid attender of these classes, which helped him continue to develop his skills as an animator and a draftsman and keep up with the drastic changes in animation going on very quickly at the studio. He didn't fall behind as many of the older animators who, like himself, hadn't gone to art school were beginning to fall behind. And that's the reason why some of the earlier animators with the Walt Disney Studio really didn't last with the studio. And there are many reasons why some of them didn't. But and why some never really made it into like the the nine old men, let's say, category. But um because they didn't keep up. Yeah. It it makes sense. I mean that's that's a lot of careers out there is that if you you fall behind, you're you're quickly gonna find yourself 
you know, just I don't want to say irrelevant because that's that seems too mean and harsh, but uh, it definitely you're making your lives a lot harder by not by not keeping up as much as you can. But less. Um, he was a hard worker. And that's something that as I was reading about him, you know, everybody was saying how he was so devoted to his craft and improving his skills that even though he did not have formal art training when Walt hired him, um, Les, Les took advantage of every opportunity that there was to continue to develop his skills. Yeah, well, and that's that's what you have to do. I mean, I, it's... Uh, Again, a lot of careers, especially in the arts and creative sides. I mean, just on it, with what I do with the stuff with the Diz and in podcasts. You know, if if there's something that that I don't know, and that's as technology has has grown since I started this job, and since I went to school 15 years ago for this stuff, a lot a lot changes in technology quickly, and I have to work after hours overnight sometimes to try to figure out how to do things that that are still required for my job in order for me to keep up and and stay up to date and and it's just that's that's one of those uh that's one of those it's it's it things where it just comes down to being work ethic and then drive to to be better and Mm -hmm. it's uh it's it's not a surprise that les clark had that in him yeah Broad as well as nuanced performances were needed to bring the group of dwarfs to life for Walt Disney's first feature film. When Snow White started, Les was given lots of complicated scenes with the dwarfs and was a key contributor to the film. Les had the experience and talent to animate important acting scenes. Fred Moore's cartoony designs of the dwarfs allowed for the rich, fluid movements that most animators enjoyed creating. Les's most important scene in the film is when the dwarfs are dancing in the silly song sequence. Les had the challenge of matching the perspective and movements of the cartoony caricatured dwarfs that were conceived through imagination with the realistic Snow White. Whilst Snow White was animated based on reference from live action footage, Les had to draw the dwarfs entirely from imagination. With the many different camera angles, perspectives, and silly dance moves, this was no mean feat. But Les, as usual, dedicated himself to the task and worked his hardest with great success. He animated several scenes of the dwarfs playing different instruments, including Sleepy playing the flute. At one point, Sleepy pauses and yawns, when suddenly a pesky house fight flies into Sleepy's wide-open mouth. The fly is quickly chased away with brisk hand gestures. Although the scene is just over six seconds long, enough time is given to each part of the performance, the yawn, the invading insect, Sleepy's realization of what has happened, and his swift action to swat away the fly. And and again, you know, timing is everything. And when you think it's only six seconds and how well Les told this whole story in just the six seconds through his animation, it is really impressive. Oh, yeah. No, it it is really impressive. Um, 
it's yeah i i I don't know really what else to even say about it in that way but uh it's another another uh moment here where this sequence is is just so so important to the movie in terms of of the heart of it well the well what what's you know so noted is how well the animators were able to convey emotion i mean every animation's trick and skill that they had learned everything was in snow white and the seven dwarfs and the way that they when when they were able to make the audiences feel emotion that um at snow white's death with the you know with the dwarfs crying Mm -hmm. and that the audience cried you know i mean that must have been when they all knew you know walt and his team knew they were successful in everything that they did to create this film. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, but, uh, yeah. And, and what I, and also about this scene, because I, I was thinking about it, the, the silly song sequence, you know, it adds something to the film because that's where we see the person, a, a lot of the personalities of the dwarfs and they're sort of bonding with Snow White. But it's also when you think that, it's a scene that's included in every version of the um, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, uh, you know, dark ride attractions at the various theme parks. True. That's how instrumental this is and important this scene is to the film. Yeah, I mean, I even I was doing a live stream the other day and... And I was, or nope, actually, that's a lie. I was not doing a live stream. I was working on a video that I haven't released yet. And I was walking uh, up and down, getting a closer look at Main Street, especially the windows on Main Street. And I had to point out with, with Snow White that that's the window that we have right on the Emporium from Snow White is also the Silly Song Dance. And that mm-hmm. just goes to say how important it actually is. Yeah. You know, before being assigned to Pinocchio, Les went on to animate Mickey Mouse in the ambitious short The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which was done with classical music. Les animated the scene in which Mickey commands the broom to come to life and does so with great intensity. Whilst his body is stretched in a strong forward arch, his fingers flutter furiously, which heightens the scene's tension and makes us believe that there really is magic at work. It is dramatically staged, perfectly timed, and displays an intensity in Mickey's emotions that we've never seen before. And then Mickey's attitude changes after he succeeds in making the broom follow him to the well. Les animates Mickey with confidence as he hops along as he leads the broom. Mickey's movement is made more interesting and complex by the overlapping action in Mickey's oversized robe. The realistic movement of the folds of Mickey's robe perfectly enhance his bouncy motion. And and Mickey's robe is almost a character of its own. Like when that, that scene I just described where, you know, Mickey is... Um, trying to bring the broom to life and how the robe goes over his fingers because he's so intensely, you know, um, you know, arching his hands, his arms towards it and all that. I mean, I think it's just over a wonderful scene. And of course, you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is probably one of my favorite 
things ever animated by the Walt Disney Studios. So yeah, and even the right. even the way the robe uh, does come to life. I mean, that even is like the next evolution again from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, especially when you look at like a character with Dopey that has some uh, clothing issues as well along the way too. So it's I I it's another example of even. Even if maybe Les didn't work on that exact gag in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that does not mean that that it's not take the concepts that were put into place and make them better and take them mm-hmm. to the next step. I think I think it's a, a a great example of it, and I think a lot of people would sit here and say that that Sorcerer's Apprentice is is the ultimate triumph of of making a Mickey Mouse cartoon. It's it's kind of it's kind of the top not not to insult any of the other any of the other shorts that are amazing but sorcerer's apprentice it's it's where everything came together and you know it's everything has to peak at some point but that doesn't mean it still can't be good before and after mhm mm-hmm. i agree absolutely and 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 there's not not a spoken word but yet we see Mickey's personality, you know, it, through his uh, basically through his facial features and his body movement and all that. It's his personality is perfectly conveyed. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no questions about how he feels in any of it, and then the music, just how it how it syncs up again, just it adds adds even extra more layers to it. Yeah, unless his animation of Mickey in that sequence, which eventually would end up being a segment in the even more ambitious Fantasia, is amongst his best work since Les's sensitivity and warmth are really effective in the lighthearted, inexperienced apprentice. We feel real sympathy for Mickey and very much connect with the worry that is going through him as his innocent mistake uh, begins to have a domino effect. So, when Les came on to Pinocchio, he helped out on many different parts of the movie, primarily in the animation of Pinocchio. Whilst Milt Call, Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnston supervised Pinocchio's animation, Les was happy to help out wherever he was needed. He animated the sequence where Pinocchio turns around when Geppetto is inspecting him before leaving for school. And I always thought that was one of the best gags in the film. Yes. Yep. Where his body turns around, but his head stays still. <laughs> When towards the end of the film, Geppetto is reunited with Pinocchio inside Monstro the Whale, Les animated some insightful performances. For instance, after a big sneeze, Pinocchio's donkey ears pop out from beneath his hat, and Pinocchio is at a loss of words for an explanation. He holds his donkey tail and is deeply embarrassed. The feeling of guilt and shame Pinocchio is feeling in this scene is beautifully portrayed by Les. And and I think any parent of a young child would uh, sort of recognize some of the 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 expressions that Les um, gave to Pinocchio in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> After Pinocchio, Clark returned to Fantasia, where he animated the sugar plum fairies and other various sprites in the segment The Nutcracker Suite. The development of specific personalities were not required for this segment. 
Less based the fairies' elegant movements on hummingbirds, which gave their flying patterns a beautiful stop-and-go feeling. Less drew these delicate fairies with sizable wings and long legs, which helped to define their charming female poses. And again, this is another one of my favorite scenes out of Fantasia. Yeah, it's like... When you watch this around Christmas time, I know that Nutcrackers is Christmas, but this is this is like the segment that I feel like defines why you watch the why you watch Fantasia in this <coughs> this version of the Nutcracker Suite around Christmas time because it's just it, it the way the way the the sugar plum fairies are are dancing and bring in that that frost winter element it's just there's oh it's so chilling it's so realistic and it's it's just top-notch animation Mm -hmm. the delicacy of the animation just always dazzles me yes in this scene Walt was pleased with Les's Mickey in Fantasia, Sorcerer's Apprentice, and especially liked his delicate handling of the Sugar Plum Fairies in a Nutcracker Suite. Throughout this time, Les's connection with both Walt and Roy grew, and he played polo with Walt regularly. In 1940, Les was given the honor of having a seat on the newly formed animation board, which he would serve on for many years. Instead of going on to the realistic low-key Bambi, Les was assigned to the cartoony or Dumbo, where he animated some scenes of the title character, particularly in the clown act sequence. In 1940's Fantasia, Mickey Mouse conducted the universe, but in 1942's The Symphony Hour, he conducts an orchestra which includes classic Disney characters, Donald Duck, Goofy, Clara Cluck, Clarabelle Cow, and Horace Horsecollar. Mickey had gone through a few design changes since the early 1940s. The inside of his ears were now gray and almost moved dimensionally. In previous films, his ears just slid across his head. His torso was now a bit smaller, and more volume was given to his nose, hands, and feet. Les animated the opening scenes when the musicians tried to follow Mickey's lead. Les made this scene visually interesting by varying Mickey's hand gestures just enough to give the animation texture. Each hand action needed to end one or two frames ahead of the actual sound in order to feel in sync with the music. And I recently rewatched the Symphony Hour, and it's hilarious because, of course, it all goes terribly wrong because Goofy has a mishap with the instruments when he's delivering them. But, um, again, but yeah, when you watch Mickey's hand gestures as he's conducting, uh, again, there's the detail and the fluidity of movement in his fingers and hands. Really impressive. Yeah, that's one that I need to to rewatch because I think it's been a while and I forgot. This was the last thing that I kind of forgot to prep up on for this episode, but... Uh, from from my memories of it, I I remember, I remember truly, truly enjoying it like everything else we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a. Those of you who remember Spike Jones, it has it has a Spike Jones kind of element musical quality to it. So, 
Now, during World War II, Les stayed at the studio animating the war shorts, including the Oscar-winning Der Fuhrer's Face, where along with Milt Neal, he created many of the key personality scenes of Donald Duck, showing his turmoil and anxiety of being in Nazi Germany. And in our next installment, we'll continue to take a look at Les's accomplishments at the studio during and after the war. Now it's time to take a look back at This Week in Disney History. All right, well, we're here on the last day of February, so we're going to start out with February 28th. This Russian composer visited the Walt Disney Studio with his lawyer Randolph Polk to play the piano score of Peter and the Wolf for Walt Disney and Disney composer Lee Harling on February 28, 1938. What is the name of this composer? Oh, I, I know. I, I'm, I can see his name in my head, but I do not know how to even begin to pronounce it. I know it's I know it's very Russian. <laughs> it is, yeah. Sergei Prokofiev. Yep, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. I just need okay. you to fill in the words. <laughs> now, Peter and the Wolf was written by Prokofiev in 1936 and was actually first commissioned by Natalia Satz in the Central Children's Theater in Moscow. And Walt Disney will produce an animated version of the work in 1946 with Sterling Holloway providing the voice of the narrator. In an episode of the Disneyland television show, entitled The Fourth Anniversary Show, Walt recalled how Prokofiev himself visited the Disney studio, eventually inspiring the making of this animated version. But Walt Disney used an actor to recreate how the composer sat at the piano and played the themes from the score. This must have been on one of the um, home video releases of Peter and the Wolf because I've seen this fourth anniversary show or at least this segment. Yeah, I feel like I remember it too. It, but, you know, what what can I remember actually anymore? But it it I, I do feel like I remember it. Okay, March fourth. The number five locomotive is dedicated to the Magic Kingdom Park at Walt Disney World on March first, nineteen ninety seven. What is the name of the locomotive? I believe that was the Ward Kimball. That is correct. And this had, we just talked about the Ward Kimball being uh, dedicated at Disneyland on a previous This Week in Disney History. This Ward Kimball has a long history here. So, of course, it's named for the animator Ward Kimball. In 1995, the Southern California Railroad enthusiast Bill Norad traded his 1927 Davenport locomotive to Disneyland in exchange for the five retired cholesterol-roofed Retlaw 1 coaches. The locomotive was instead sent to Walt Disney World after deemed too large to operate in California and was dedicated as number five Ward Kimball. And unfortunately, the, no- the locomotive will never pull a public train on the Walt Disney World Railroad as it was found to be far too small for operation. It will be put on display at Epcot and later returned to the Walt Disney World Engine House. And in 1999, 
It will be traded to Cedar Point for a smaller Forney locomotive, which, after being restored, will become the Disneyland Railroad Number no. Five Ward Kimball in two thousand and five. <laughs> that's yep. That is the history of it. Yeah, I knew all of that as well too. If you oh, would have actually asked me that, but uh, yeah, you gave it. You gave me the easy way out this week. Okay, but, well, I'll, I'll I'll keep this in mind for next year. <laughs> no, I I I barely pulled that one out. It's just the video I talked about already once that I was going up close. Uh, I I also I also took time to read all of the the actual plaques and and postings that are in the train station on the bottom floor of Main Street USA that has all this amazing information that I feel like no one reads at all. So uh, next time you're at Magic Kingdom, read everything you can. There's a lot of information in Magic Kingdom's Main Street train station on that ground floor. Yeah. It's like a little museum. Yeah. I, I truly did not realize. Like, I've walked through there before and looked at the pictures but I never bothered really reading into a lot of it. And it's just fascinating. Super fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay, March 2nd. United States Steel Corporation, mo- most commonly known as U.S. Steel, was founded on March 2nd, 1901. Formed by financier and banker J.P. Morgan by financing the merger of Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company with Albert H. Gary's Federal Steel Company and William Henry Judge Moore's National Steel Company, it played a major part in the construction of which Walt Disney World Resort? I believe that would have to be contemporary because it was just big, big steel frame that they just slid everything into place for that's correct that's correct the 15-story contemporary resort the u.s u.s steel manufactured the nearly 500 rooms for the building's main trapezoidal tower in a purpose-built factory on disney property a few miles from the site their workers not only built the individual room chassis, each approximately 9 feet high, 15 feet wide, and 30 feet long, but also installed interior finishes and furniture, including the television set. Once the modules arrived by the site, at the site, they were craned directly into the superstructure and hung on cables from its top bracing. The idea being that they could then just slide them out, refurbish them, and slide them back in again. But, um, of course, that that turned out not to be possible Absolutely. after the building settled. <laughs> yep. so. and, uh, and I'm just happy that you, you chose a Pittsburgh-related question for me. So, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. March 3rd. The voice and model for Peter Pan in the 1953 Disney classic was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on March 3rd, 1937. What is his name? Uh, Bobby Driscoll. Correct. He also appeared in such live-action Disney features as the 1950 Treasure Island, playing the role of Jim Hawkins, the 1948 So Dear to My Heart as Jeremiah, and the 1946 Song of the South as Johnny. He had a very tragic life after Disney. He did. We share a birthday, though. Ah, okay. All righty, March 4th. 
On March 4th, 2004, it is reported that embattled Walt Disney Company Chief Executive Michael Eisner was stripped of his role as chairman at yesterday's annual shareholders meeting. Who did the Disney board elect as the company's new chairman? Uh, uh, I'm trying to not to psych myself out here because I almost jumped immediately to Roy Disney. No. I know it's not that, though, (laughs) obviously. He was behind this, though. He was behind all this maneuvering. So who... Um, I, I, this, my head is just not, I'm not there. Who is it? Disney's board elected former United States Senator George Mitchell as the company's new chairman. I was not getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't even know why they elected him. Um, I think he, oh, he was a compromised vote, I believe. Um, Eisner will continue to keep his position as chief executive, even though 43% of shareholders voted against him in an unprecedented protest. Are you saying that people don't remember him now for his greatest contributions and appreciate him forever for his hard work? George Mitchell? Yeah. Um, I, I doubt they remember him as being on the Disney board as the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> he did other things. I mean, clearly I didn't remember, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, March 5th. What attraction opened in the Imagination Pavilion at Epcot Center on March 5th, 1983? I believe that would be Journey into Imagination. That's correct. Presented by Kodak. Journey into Imagination. This version features the Dreamfinder, the attraction's pilot, who teaches Figment, a small purple creature with orange steer horns, voiced by Billy Barty, to use his imagination. The ride features the song One Little Spark, composed by the Sherman Brothers. The Imagination Pavilion, featuring the Magic Journeys film, has been open since the park's debut on October 1st, 1982. Oh, here's another one where a pavilion it went so terribly wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and it will it will never be fixed until unfortunately it's probably gone, but we also don't want that. So uh it's a it's a tough one. It's really tough. It is. March 6th. This character actress and voiceover performer passed away at age 87 in California on March 6th, 2000. She was the voice of Clarabelle Cow from 1933 to 1990 in such shorts as Mickey's Melodrummer, Mickey's Fire Brigade, Mickey's Amateurs, and The Prince and the Pauper. She also supplied various voices for the Old Mill and Donald's Ostrich. She may be best remembered for her role as the no-nonsense Chocolate Factory Supervisor on I Love Lucy and her semi-regular roles on the sitcoms The Beverly Hillbillies as Alverna Bradshaw and Petticoat Junction as Selma Plout. What is her name? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to let you give it to me. Elvia Allman. But you can probably picture her. I I mean, I can... You know... Like, I can picture her from... Uh, you said the moment in I Love Lucy, but I did not know her name. 
Yeah. I didn't either, to be honest, until I came across this. I thought, <laughs> oh, no, this is a fun little fact. And, and she she played on she played on all those 60 sitcoms. Sitcoms, 56. There's almost... You'd be hard-pressed to find one she hadn't been on. And she'd, yeah. been, and she'd been in a ton of movies, too. And... Um, but it's funny, those character actors of which that seems to be a craft that has almost died out. Um, you know, they, you know, we should know her name because she was on virtually every sitcom there was. You know, I mean, you know, Andy Griffith's show, she had a role. I mean, she did all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah. and the, it's, it's really tough. Like the, the character actor because it's hard it's hard being just like typecast in these kind of roles but they're they're some of the most memorable characters that really Mm -hmm. leave that long-lasting impression but then you know you're also an actor you don't want to get typecast you don't want to do the same things over again but uh it's there's no doubt when you lose a great character actor one day that that everyone eventually is going to be like oh yes i know them from that or that or that and you just never connected the dots and <laughs> it's clearly elvia but but a tribute to character actors too is, is that they can be on the same television show television series playing different characters and you and and they look the same but you totally believe they're different characters because i'm binge watching the andy griffith show um, I, I sometimes watch it at lunch or doing something. And, um, there's one character, I couldn't tell you his name, but he, he was, but he was also on Gomer Pyle's show. He, he has already played, I think, six roles on the Andy Griffith show, and I'm only in <laughs> season five. It is a different character every single time. And, um, and, and it's totally believable that he's a different character. You know, yeah. and he looks exactly the same. Yeah, sometimes and, he's wearing a hat, sometimes he's not, and that that still happens sometimes. Not not to the level you're saying. You know, maybe maybe like twice on the same show mm-hmm. in a different character, and usually that happens though when it's someone who comes in for a bit part or a cameo, and then ends up becoming a part of the cast later on, and or just a bigger a bigger role than just a small cameo, but. Yeah, that's uh, back in the day, completely, completely different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, people could make their whole career on just being a character, actor, or actress. Yeah. A lot did. Well, Craig, not only is you, we have your birthday coming up, so happy birthday. Do you have any special plans? Oh, no. It's hard to beat. Last year, my birthday was, uh, my birthday was on the opening media day of mickey and minnie's runaway railway so uh that after that it's kind of impossible to to really top any birthday celebration like that so you know probably just i'll probably do the normal celebration of everyone who's had a birthday in the middle of the pandemic um sit at home and enjoy enjoy being around my wife and, and my dogs and think about all the things i have to be lucky for and and just Make the best out of, make the best out of the day, and uh, probably work a lot. I should probably <laughs> go to work because I believe it's the first day of the, the flower and garden festival at Epcot. Oh, oh my favorite so, festival. Eh, yeah, I guess I should go to work. I don't. We'll figure that out. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to seeing all your photos and videos of the topiaries and 
Merchandise. I want to know what merchandise there is. Let me know if there's any, excuse me, any garden statues. I would absolutely. They didn't make any last year. So I want, I want, I want yeah. a new garden statue. Anyway, but, but happy birthday. Thank you. To you. I hope you have a fun day. I want to acknowledge another anniversary and th- that, and it's important to this show, Connecting with Walt, because we are a spinoff. Speaking, we're, we're talking, you know, about television series and all that, you know, the day, you know, Back in the day, spinoffs were a thing of television shows. Well, well, Connecting with Walt is a spinoff of a show he, that was here on the Dis Unplugged Network. And that is the Dis Unplugged Disneyland Edition podcast. It debuted 10 years ago on February 17th. And although I was not an original member of the show, that show debuted with, of course, host and producer Tom Bell and Mary Jo Mulatto Willie and, um, Nancy Johnson and Tony, um, <laughs> just Tony, <laughs> Tony. And, uh, and then of course, Wayne Toygo. Well, why does Tony's last name escape me? I have no idea. I have to look, I have to look him up on my phone, but, um, and um but anyway and so they debuted that show i came on i think a couple of years later and and um as a replacement for wayne who was planning to leave the show due to work um obligations and then i was on that show connecting with walt started simultaneously and then as um then connecting with walt went to a weekly show and then the Disneyland show was sort of reformatted, became a video, you know, podcast video show with a, you know, entirely new um, team. But um, that was a fun show. And, you know, I owe the success, you know, to uh, connecting with Walt to Tom Bell and Pete Werner, because Pete approved my uh, coming on to the Disneyland show. And then when um, people who listen to the Walt Disney World show, give a little history, uh, listen to the Walt Disney World show said, hey, you know, you have somebody talking about Disneyland's history. We'd like to know a little about Walt Disney World's history. That's when Pete reached out to me about expanding uh, the history segments, which the discussions eventually evolved into the creation of Connecting with Walt. That was named by my late wife, Carol, as we were struggling for a name of the show. And, and when she said, tell me what the show's going to be about. And I kept saying, everything's going to connect back to Walt. And I kept saying that. And then she said, well, how about calling it Connecting with Walt? <laughs> so anyway, and um, so I just want to acknowledge the Disneyland team and thank them for um you know everything. They're, they're, they remain dear friends and family um, to me, and um, we had a lot of fun together. Yeah. So, and we still do when we when 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 the park reopens. I'm sure we'll get together again. Yeah. You so. guys were supposed to have a big meetup with with all of you and Tony Spatel. Spatel, thank you, too, <laughs> Lord. I am getting old. So. It's. It, I I had to stop and to him like. Am I? What what name am I trying to think of? Because I had Spatel at the tip of my tongue, and then the last thing I was I wanted to do was throw out a wrong name and be like, "Well, we've had him on this show how many times? I should know it know it by heart." But I'm, it's at least for me, I can say that that I'm just terrible with last names. 
I am too. <clears throat> yeah, I am too. Anyway, so anyway, so th- that that's it. I wanted to acknowledge that anniversary because it there's a direct connection to this show from the Disneyland Edition podcast. Yes, we were supposed to get together, and then um, the pandemic hit. I had my surgeries. The pandemic hit. I mean, everything yeah. happened. So, so we will once Disneyland reopens. They they announced today the Grand Californian. Um, DVC Villas are reopening in May, which is exciting. That so, is exciting. Yeah. yeah. I have my reservations in December for the villas that I made, <laughs> I don't know, a month or two ago. Yeah. So. I, I would. Not my favorite hotel on the property, but you know what? I More and more lately, I've been, I've been just sitting around thinking how much I miss California and how much I miss Disneyland. And I would, I would give anything to be out at that hotel mm-hmm. when it, it reopens. But I won't be because it's still, still not necessarily uh, safe to travel just for for any reason at all. But I will, I will be there as soon as I can. I miss mm-hmm. it so much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. So, well, you know, I, I know we were talking before the show. You've had your adventures on Twitter lately, and I, I had one too, and it was not quite as dramatic as yours. But um, mine, you know, I, you know, I, I'm enjoying Wandavision immensely, and so what really ticked me off last Friday, um, I, you know, because we, I'd heard, you know, on Good Morning America, they were announcing you know, what was going to happen for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. So when I woke up in the morning, I thought I'd go on, and this was like at, you know, 5.30 or something in the morning. I'll go on Twitter to see what is the announcement. The first five Twitter posts I saw were all people spoiling the ending of WandaVision. And I was so angry because I thought, what sad, pathetic little lives you people lead. That you have to, they, okay, fine. You woke up at midnight or 3 a.m., whatever it was, to watch it. And that's fine. I wish I I could do that. But to then ruin it for everybody, because you have to post not only the ending, but then you have to do a screen grab of a, a pivotal moment and and put it on Twitter. And then, they, you know, you space a little, uh, you know, you write spoiler and space a little, thinking those spaces make any difference. Like you're hiding it. And I, for the first time in my life on Twitter, I blocked people because I thought, I, I don't want to see ever again anything you have to say. So yeah. I was, I, I don't understand why people do that. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, it is so frustrating. And it's really, really, really stinks with, with Disney Plus when it's on. You know, the West Coast, a lot of people are up at midnight for it and we have to wait until the next morning. And like, especially for for me, where it's literally part of a job that I have to get up and check social media, make sure I know everything that's happening. And I have to I have to literally battle around trying to avoid spoilers. And uh, it's just I, I get everyone's excited about wanting to talk about it, but I feel like we have all. We've been through enough shows now where we all acknowledge, like, give give it at least a weekend. Wait until if it comes out on Friday. Wait until Monday. And then 
then take it as a water cooler topic. Everyone's back to work on Monday. Now we can we can start talking about the show bigger. It's like just because you know, it, just because you were able to watch it doesn't mean that everyone else was able to watch it right away. And it's just I I feel like we should have figured this out by now, but we well, really and haven't. If you- and if you want to talk about it immediately because you're excited, there's plenty of forums online that are discussing this where they, they label it, you know, uh, Disney Plus um, spoilers or, or, or WandaVision spoilers and all that. So at least people have to click on it and, and purposefully go into it. So go there and talk about it but don't ruin it for everybody yeah that's very true i mean it's even though it seems very old school message boards still very very much exist and Mm -hmm. they are out there and they they are providing a a way to have these discussions with with like-minded people who also wouldn't be visiting them unless they are they are in and they know about everything that's happening so uh, it's that's that's a, a very good point that not everything necessarily needs to be talked about on on a, a certain platform in this case being being Twitter you don't need to just go straight to to Twitter to post about it there are, there are better places mm-hmm. so anyway well and now a new series has been announced I'm Ronald D Moore um, He's now developing a Magic Kingdom TV universe like the Marvel MCU for Disney Plus. And his first project's going to be the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. He's going to write it and be the executive producer. It's loosely based on the fictional organization of the same name that's part of Disney theme park lore. There's something in just about every Disney theme park around the world now that has the SEA. Yeah. It's funny because in one of them, Joe Rohde is the image for the SCA member in that particular park. But, yeah. of course, he's moved on. <laughs> so, but um, I'm looking forward to this. I hope it's good. So Yeah, um, it's uh, so I am being uh, cautiously optimistic about this one just in terms of it ever actually happening because development is – Development is very, very early along in the process. Uh, mm-hmm. If you know, if they said that it was already to like the script phase, then that's a that's even more positive. That's saying, okay, well, you know, it's they have the idea down now. Let's get the scripts, and if the scripts are 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 good, then we can move on to the rewrites, and then finally casting, and really going from there. So development is just so so early in on the stage that I just have a feeling that it's probably never going to happen. And I don't, I don't want to be negative about it. I really want it to happen. I really want it to exist. I think it's, I think it's a perfect, uh, it's a perfect concept to explore and Disney plus is the right medium to do it on, but it just seems like it has an uphill battle. And at some point I feel like there is going to be uh, a question from someone, uh, someone higher up on the chain saying, I don't, I don't know. Is this really what our audience wants to see? And I feel like, I feel like when that question finally gets brought up before they get too serious about it, that's when the door is going to shut on yeah. it. But did, did they announce that he was rebooting Swiss family Robinson? I believe he's doing yes. a series on I, that. I think so. And, uh, but I, I could be mixed. 
Okay, yeah, that he was he was in on that. It was John Chu, I think, that was doing Willow in that series. But I know that like he dropped out of Willow too. But I've, I'm blending everything in my head. And but the point is that you know, it, so many people are thrown around for so many projects that it's we we will be lucky if they all come to fruition. But uh, it, there's a lot. There's a lot of battles that they have to to go through in in order to make it actually come to life, and I just I worry that I worry that they get too adventurous with with some of these these projects, and it's it's hard to it's hard to look at something like a SEA and say you know what why should we do this versus another safe reimagining of a Disney character that we all know and love, but we need oh, to like Cruella backstory. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because I the last trailer that came out for that since we've done this it did not look great. However, the trailer that they showed us during the investor day looked so, the tone of it was so much more better. So I don't know why they swapped it out between the investor days back in December and this one. Uh, they had a, they had a perfectly fine trailer they could have used, but. Uh, they they went for a complete different feel versus the last one, and uh, so I don't know which one. I don't know which one to actually believe in. I don't know. I, it's just haven't they hit us over the head with 101 Dalmatians enough? We had first of all, I love the original animated one, but then we had the two Glenn Close vehicles, mm-hmm. and then and now this. I have no desire. And then and and they're, they're going to do what they did with Maleficent. They're going to take a perfectly good villain and now she's going to be a victim and misunderstood and all this stuff and i i'm sick of this reimagining the the villains and i i actually i saw this trailer i thought i have no desire to see this like i had no desire to see i hated the first maleficent film and i and i never saw the second one and i have no i'm probably not seeing cruella and um I, I'm just sick of it. I'm tired of this. Yeah. Leave the stories alone and come up with something new. Uh, that's a hard part. I, I really I adore Emma Stone, and I I do like a lot of the the cast that that has been announced for it, and I'm very interested in it. But um, it, you have to you have to stand back and ask the question as always. Like, could this have just been a movie, not necessarily about this character? Could you have just made a movie like this that? that restarted something new and fresh. I mean, there it's always, it's very easy to borrow from ideas. It doesn't need to be the exact same characters that we already know. Except but, there's a built in audience because is. everybody knows 101 Dalmatians. So. I, yeah. And people, yeah. people will see it. I don't even like the Glenn close ones of that. I don't like 101 or 102 Dalmatians. So mm-hmm. I, I adore the animated film, but so far my track record with, with live action adaptations of it is not good. So I probably ultimately will not like Cruella, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic with it that it's so loosely actually based on Cruella DeVille. And it's more of just a solely a, a prequel to her and not intertwined with, with what then happens in the rest of the movies. Like, I, I think I can be okay with it to an extent if it's that way, because Ultimately, we're also talking about different timelines, so it's 
you can't jump from the late 70s punk era of London to <laughs> and uh, back into the... the uh, and they'll, they'll remake 101 Dalmatians live action with a bunch of computerized Dalmatians. So. Well, I have a feeling if that <laughs> happens, it will be direct to Disney+. Plus that <laughs> seems about the only place that that should go. Yeah. Well, speaking of Disney Plus, I, I I looked through and saw what am I looking forward to in March, and I looked at Hulu too. My my list of what I'm looking forward to on Disney Plus. Well, of course, the season finale of WandaVision on March fifth. Mm-hmm. That should be good. Now they're saying season finale, but I thought this was a series finale, or is it now so popular that they're going to rethink it? Hmm. I don't know. I could have swore. I mean, maybe it was just a. A mistake in terms of the marketing but I, I thought it was a limited a, a one-off series as well too but who knows maybe maybe that's one of the surprises with it maybe maybe it'll be a spoiler where or not a spoiler but maybe it'll be the big reveal that oh nope we do have more of the story to tell that oh we're that not would done. be fine that'd be fine with me if it's as good as exactly this is, man. it's got to maintain yeah. the the quality that is there yeah. for this first season and then for Disney Plus Premier Access on March 5th, there's Raya and the Last Dragon. Are you paying your $30 to see this, Craig? I, I think I think I'm not. I think I'm yeah, not. Yeah, I'm waiting till what? I think it's June. It's for the rabble to watch, right? So yeah. I think I'm waiting till June. Yeah, I, I could change my mind on it, but it's I, I'm really backed up in movies right now in terms of catching up on a lot, and I'm not... I, I'm interested in it. And I think it looks like it's animated beautifully, like a ton of Disney movies do as of lately. And uh, I, I just, I don't know if I'm all there. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. all there for thirty dollars. I, I have no doubt that, like every other movie that's been released, uh, direct to Disney Plus, with the exception of Mulan. But uh, with Onward, I didn't see that in theaters, so I waited for Disney Plus and. With when Soul comes out, you know I'm I'm buying physical copies and Mulan. Eventually, I'll get the physical copy of that as well too because again I'm a completionist. Even though I don't need it, I'll still get it eventually one day. Uh, I I just I feel better about supporting it, supporting it in that way versus mm-hmm. dropping the thirty dollars for for Premier Access. And uh, it's I, I have no doubt Disney is still going to make animated movies even if people don't drop. $30 on it it's it, they know they know what's happening in the world uh, it's just they're still struggling to figure out the best way to monetize it right yeah. now so I can't I can't do it just because of how how I am is <laughs> with my idiosyncrasies but if, if who knows if if before June the world is a complete different place then there can be get-togethers where there's you know five of us that are all vaccinated and we can all sit in a room and watch it together on TV, then absolutely I will pay the money for it. But for just Kylie and I, I can't, I can't yeah. get over that $30. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Oh, by June, it'll be free. So you don't have to worry about it. So it's <laughs> free on Disney plus. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, um, and then assemble the making of WandaVision on March 12th. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 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 And then a new series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, March nineteenth. I'm I'm excited about this. 
I, I'm so. I'm still trying to get excited about it. I I was really pumped about it because I obviously love these characters. I mm-hmm. I still think that Captain America: The Winter Soldier is one of the best Marvel movies of of all of them in the the MCU, and so that has me. You know that the fact that these characters get to continue telling their story, really really enjoy that. But something about it just. I, I don't know if I'm as sold on it as as I am with with how I was sold on WandaVision, how I feel about some of the other upcoming ones, including Loki. To me, I'm worried that this one is gonna feel like feel like the story could have been told in a movie, but they couldn't but maybe they can't decide should it be uh, a Falcon movie should it be a Winter Soldier movie? Okay, well let's just throw them together because there's one random Marvel storyline that all the comic book people out there know about, but the rest of us don't, and we can now tell the story in that way. And I, I, I know I will watch every week, despite whether or not I actually it, am loving it. But yeah, I'm I'm still I'm still on the fence about if I think it's going to be the next Wandavision or the next Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll see. But yeah, I'm excited about it. And then what I'm not excited about, but I'm just bringing it up. This is probably more for your generation than mine. Um, the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, March 26th. Yeah, it's uh, of course I grew up with the Mighty Ducks. I mean, I've mm-hmm. talked about them on here before. I I'm excited to watch the first episode, but ultimately this is for this is for the next generation. I mean, it's. I feel like they probably are maybe even jumping the gun with this a little bit sooner than they should. Uh, the same way I felt about uh, felt about when Disney Channel did their uh, Girl Meets World, the Boy Meets World spinoff. Um, you know, uh, I know there are plenty of uh, my classmates and people that were right around my age uh, that that already have kids and you know have had their family started up but i feel like a lot a lot of people my age still aren't quite at the point yet where they have you know 10 11 year olds that this would be like the the chief demographic for and so that's you're kind of missing out on the the idea of oh i loved this movie as a kid now i want to experience with it with you experience the show with you in that way too i feel like feel like it's a little soon for that but uh i will uh, i I'll, I'll give it a shot but i don't i don't think i'll stick with it just yeah. just the nostalgia of Mount mighty ducks isn't going to be enough to get me through it has to be it has to be made that adults can truly enjoy it too and that that doesn't happen a lot with yeah. with some of these uh, Disney productions. Yeah. Although, boy, that little squirrel movie's gotten great reviews. <laughs> I came very close to putting it on just because I didn't I realize. I almost watched it. Yeah. I almost. I'm going to watch it. I, I, everybody I know who's seen it has loved it, and I subscribed to. I don't know. I think it's Ebert. dot mm-hmm. com. And so every Friday I get a whole list of movie reviews and they love this film. <laughs> yeah, I well I think part of it too is that I didn't really know a lot about the cast that was in it like I you, you see the girl and the squirrel in the poster mm-hmm. and a lot of it but uh like the the parents in it are Ben Schwartz and Allison Hannigan and 
loved Allison Hannigan on How I Met Your Mother for years and years and years. And Ben Schwartz is one of the greatest comedians around right now. So I feel like they they found they found a lot of great supporting cast yeah. to actually be yeah. in the movie to make it to make it that blend that I literally just said that I hope is in with Mighty Ducks is uh, perfect for adults and for kids. And I mean, the, the list just goes on and on with with great comedians that they they got for this cast. So I'm I'm definitely I'm going to watch it. It's it's on my list, but just we'll see how long it takes me to actually get there. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else on Disney Plus you're looking forward to? In March. I I think you you kind of uh, you kind of knocked it out with the list. You okay. you hit all the big ones. Yeah, and Hulu they, they're releasing a ton of stuff. The only one I think I'm definitely definitely watching Young Frankenstein, Such March first. The great Cloris Leachman who recently passed. I love that film. Yeah, I so, um, I do too. Kylie and I watch it every every single Halloween. So it is it is of my. The hundreds and hundreds of Blu-rays. It's one of my most cherished and most. I might watched. have to add that to my Halloween list. Huh. Yeah, it's of that. to me. It's a great. It's a great uh, kickoff into Halloween because you know it. it it's Frankenstein. It's that still that that mood, that style, that story. Uh, but it also there's so many feels of it. It's like a summer blockbuster almost in a way. Not a summer blockbuster, but a, a, a good a good transition movie before you're ready to get into some of the more scarier and fall Halloweenish movies that that yeah yeah you normally lump in with the season. So I, mm-hmm. I, I it's an it's an, a watch every year for for us. Yeah. Well, I used a few references when putting together this episode. A couple of books, The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspirations from Disney's Great Animators by Andreas Stasia. Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation by Don Hahn and Charles Solomon. Some articles and websites I checked out include the Disney Wiki on Les Clark. The First of the Nine, Les Clark by Tracy Timmer for the Walt Disney Family Museum. 50 Most Influential Disney Animators, um, Les Clark. I think he was number 19 on the list. And Biography, Les Clark by Animation Resources. Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on all of the shows on the Dis Unplugged podcast network that I'm on. And then always on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster and email Craig at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me emails to Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. We'll be on Pandora shortly and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.